In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them will have come from feed these people with bread here in this hymn. How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having to serve, he broke them and gave them to his disciples, set before the people, and they served them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, and he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are you hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven of the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Church, this will overlook. You may be seated. Wow. Um, it's been a while since I've actually been up on this pulpit uh, to preach. I know I host, and some of you see me every week hosting. Um, but I just want to say that I am very excited to bring today's word with my awesome best friend, Stacy. Uh, again, yeah, it's been about a year now since we preached, um, and uh, for those of you who know Stacey, although now she lives in a village called Melbourne, somewhere south of Sydney, she's still very much an RSI at heart, so when she comes on a little later to bring uh, the word, do encourage her, do cheer for her on tonight as we bring God's word together. But before we get into tonight's passage, I just want to ask you, have you heard the words fake news before? Fake news. Um, thanks to the 2016 US presidential election, you know, you see these words pretty much everywhere nowadays, right? You see it on our social media pages, you see it on our campuses, in our workplaces, on TV. Sometimes you've heard your mates say, you know, fake news, that's fake news. You know, and even also made it all the way to Cambridge Dictionary, right? So what is fake news? Cambridge Dictionary defines fake news as false stories that appear true usually spread on the internet or other media to influence political views, 
or to be viewed as a joke, right? So long story short, you know, you'd be best not to believe in what is fake news. But the thing is, with everyone nowadays telling you what to believe in or not, how do you know what is fake news or not, right? If people keep telling you, you know, believe in this, believe in that, how do you know what is right and what is wrong? You know, things that appear true or false, things that are false appear true. How do we know what to believe in anymore? And because of that, you know, you get people who say, oh, look, if I don't see it, I won't believe it, right? To them, seeing is believing. So without any physical or tangible evidence, they just won't believe in it. And this is very much the case when we come across Jesus. And that could be for some of us here tonight. Uh, when we read our Bibles or when we you know, discuss Scripture in our small groups, in our MC, or when we hear it in church, do we believe in what it says about Jesus and who Jesus is? Or do we see them as any other historical story about a, a Middle Eastern celebrity, right? And when we hear the gospel, do we believe in that it is good news or do we see it as fake news? And when we say, I believe in Christ... Do we know why we believe in Christ? The scary thing, church, that I think, you know, what, what Stacey and I want us to see tonight is that we can be around Jesus. We can talk about Jesus week in, week out. We can hear about Jesus. We can, we can share about Jesus, yet we can still fail to believe in who he is. And as we'll see from tonight's passage, what will ultimately shape our hearts in whether we genuinely believe in Jesus or not is the state of our hearts. So we'll look at three things, the receptive heart, the hard heart, and the slow heart. So firstly, the receptive heart. Uh, Mark starts off this chapter with a feeding of a great crowd, right? He says in verse 1, In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat. Now, if you've been following our series on Mark, you probably have a case of deja vu now, right? Josh, didn't we just have this sermon a couple months ago? Short answer is no. But uh, you're not alone if you thought that this was similar to when Jesus fed the crowd of the 5,000 in Mark 6, right? In fact, they are very similar and very, for a very good reason. But because it's, since, uh, because it's been about a month since we left the book of Mark, let's have a look at the context. So Jesus, after feeding the crowd of the 5,000 back in Mark 6, he left the Jews behind and he, head into, he went into Gentile territory. And if you were with us with, when Edric preached, you would remember that he healed a, a demon child uh, from a woman uh, in the city of Tyre, and he healed a deaf man in Sidon. And where Jesus is now, he's heading through a, a region called Decapolis. And you know what? Jesus preaching, teaching, and performing miracles for the Gentiles is already good news for us. Because what is promised to the Jews is also promised to the Gentiles people like you and me here today. So straight away, it's already good news for us. So as the story goes, you know, Jesus, no matter where he went, by the sea or by the mountain, you know, the crowds that followed him just got bigger and bigger. In fact, from the verses that we just read, Mark says what? That they've been following Jesus for three days, right? They have nothing to eat, and some of them have actually come from far away. Now, doesn't this say a lot about the crowd and what's important to them? For some of you who, who know me, right, I like to make sure that I have more than enough food and drinks on a road trip to last the journey there and back again. 
But for this crowd, they were something else. They were determined and have decided to stick with Jesus, even if it means that they will run out of food. Jesus also didn't announce that he'll do a three-day conference, right? Uh, guys, I'm going to do a three-day conference. Prepare yourselves. No. He was simply passing by through Decapolis. So this crowd, in following Jesus, would have been unprepared. They would have been sleeping on the ground for those three days. And they would have, um, they would have uh, yeah, they would have just given up all their comforts to follow Jesus. To them, they couldn't get enough of Jesus. Jesus' presence was far bigger than what their comfort was, or discomfort in this case. Now, if we were given the same choices today, would we make that same choice? I'm pretty sure that we would make sure that our needs were met first. I'm pretty sure that we were comfortable first before we even looked and considered Jesus. But you know what? And I love what happens next. It says Jesus had compassion on the crowd. Jesus had compassion and even considered what would happen if he sent them away hungry to their homes. They will faint on the way. Like how amazing is that, right? We get to see a glimpse, just a a small glimpse of the sheer compassion, caring and selfless heart of our Lord. Jesus knew the needs of the crowd before it even became a problem, right? And get this, church, don't miss this. This is the only place in the four Gospels where Jesus says, I have compassion in the first person, which means that Jesus' compassion for the crowd was one that was on an intimate and personal level. You know, he doesn't need to be told about their needs. He already knew about them. Church, Jesus cares, right? He cares about the crowd and he cares about you. Maybe there's some of us here tonight that need to be reminded of this. You know, you're going through your life right now and maybe you're like, oh, you know, I've, I've got a lot going on, but I don't want to bother Jesus with all my unnecessary problems. What I'm going through right now is no big of a deal. But if we understand what the passage is telling us is this, is that he knows what you're going through, he knows who you are, and he cares for you. Now, isn't that comforting, church? And what's more is, right, is after informing the disciples what deeply moved his heart, you know how the disciples answered him? How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. Now, you can't be serious, right? Again, if you're following us uh, on our series of Mark, you would know that they two chapters ago would have seen Jesus with their own eyes feed a crowd of the 5,000, similar to where we are today. How can they forget such an event? Now, we'll look at the responses of the disciples later, but what Stacy and I want you to see here is that in his compassion, it is Jesus who intimately knows our needs, and it is also Jesus who moves into action to meet us at our needs. Church, he knows He knows you, and he will act to meet you. Then what does Jesus do in meeting our needs? He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they ate, sorry, and they set before them, before the people, the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. 
Now, wouldn't it be awesome to see this miracle happen in person? I mean, just like at the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of time, the beginning of all creation, we see the creator at work here. You know, Jesus is able to make bread from grain that never grew, right? He's able to make edible fish from fish that never lived. If you think about it, really, Jesus was the original all-you-can-eat buffet, right? No matter how much the crowd took from the baskets, those baskets of bread and fish were still full. And church, can you see what is happening here, right? This receptive crowd who knew Jesus only for three days, three days, who, who gave up all their comforts to follow and listen to Jesus, got to witness in their lives his magnificent power. They got to see that what was impossible for man to do was made possible through Jesus. Yet for many of us today who know this truth about Jesus, who know this about God, who say that, yes, I'm a Christian, how often do we still doubt Jesus in our lives? Let me tell you something. Our needs and our problems are never too big. They're never too impossible. They're never too small to bring to Jesus. And if we truly believe this, and if we know this, you know what? Jesus shouldn't be our third, our second, our fourth, fifth option in our lives. But he should be our first and only option. And look what happens next. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up broke, the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. You know, the crowd ate until they were satisfied. And there were even seven baskets full. Jesus not only met the needs of the crowd, but he provided ex exceedingly more than what was needed. Now, I don't know what circumstances you've come to church with today. You know, it's, it's the month of June, the end of June. And, you know, for some of you, you're feeling empty, right? It's, you've got nothing to show for it. It's the middle of the year. Or maybe there's some of us here tonight who have been trying over and over again, but no matter how hard you try, you still fall into the same cycle of sin again and again. And because of that, you're feeling like you just want to give up. But know this, there is hope that when we come to Jesus hungry and in need, he, no matter our condition, whatever circumstances we're in, Jesus is able to exceedingly meet those needs. So that's the receptive heart. Now we're going to have a look at the hard heart. So after reading about a crowd who were receptive of Jesus, who gave up you know, all their comforts to follow and listen to him, we're now going to have a look at a people who were the exact opposite. You guessed it, the Pharisees. So Mark continues the story in verse 10. He says, And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. So after... Ministering to the Gentiles, you know what happens? Jesus now leaves the Gentiles and heads back to Jew Jewish territory, Dalmanutha. But before he could do anything with his ministry, before he could even get out of the boat and do you know, anything in the town, you know what happens? The Pharisees come out in their number, out of nowhere, to confront Jesus. It's like they just appeared out of nowhere. Poof, right? Jesus would have been away for a couple of weeks or a month even, but as soon as he returns, you know, they, they, they were already there waiting for him. They wanted to pick a fight with him. But why were the Pharisees so hostile to Jesus? The Pharisees, for those of you who don't know, were the Jewish elders of the church, right? They dedicated their entire lives to learning and reading the scripture of the Old Testament. 
And it was also their belief that a Messiah would come in blazing glory to conquer the Romans and to set free Israel once and for all. So when they came across Jesus, who was a, a carpenter from that poor part of town over there, they said, no way, Jose, is he my Messiah? And you know what they did? They did everything to put him down. They did everything to discredit him. So when Mark says that they were seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, you know what they were saying? Jesus, if you truly are who you say you are, do something heavenly to prove it. Do something celestial to change our minds. But how disbelieving can you be as a Pharisee, right? If you, again, know, if you've been following us through the series of Mark, you would know that the Pharisees were often physically present when Jesus did the miracles. And when they weren't there physically present, they would have heard first-hand accounts from all over the countryside of people being healed, people being able to walk, people being able to see, people being able to hear again. And not only that, demons being cast out. But they couldn't bring themselves to believe into Jesus. Why? Because Jesus didn't fit their expectation of a Messiah. Jesus wasn't good enough for them. And they demanded more signs and more wonders before they could even consider to believe in him. And you know what? As Christians, when we hear the Pharisees, when we come across the Pharisees, aren't we always quick to dismiss them, right? Maybe that's for some of us here tonight. When we read the passage, we're like, ah, Pharisees, that's not me, right? Let's move on to the next point. But if we're honest with ourselves, aren't we also like the Pharisees daily in our lives in that we find it difficult to believe in what is true about Jesus? If you don't know where to look, whether you really believe in Jesus or not, have a look at your prayer life. And that's if you, if you have one. Have your prayers been more about exalting you or exalting Christ? If I ask you today, why do you believe in Jesus? Why? Why do you believe in Jesus? What would your answer be? Is it because he provides you with good health, good relationship, good job, financial security? What is it? What have been the stakes for you to give your life to Christ? Because most often than not, you know what, church? We will only believe in Jesus if it's convenient or good for us. Only if, or when we get something good out of it. The moment something unexpected happens in our life, the moment something goes wrong in our life, you know what? Our life starts crumbling down and before, not before long, we come to God and we say, God, I need you to give me a sign. God, I need to give you more. Give me, give me a sign that I know you're there before we can continue to believe in him. You know, we start saying, God, if you really love me, please let this happen. God, if you give me this job, I'll know you're there. God, if you are a good God, please make this relationship work. Church, if we're not careful, what becomes central in our hearts is no longer how can I change my life to glorify Christ, but it becomes how can I change Christ to glorify my life. Like the Pharisees, we've become self-centered, and, and in our unbelief, we come to God bargaining with him. And when that fails, it won't be long before our hardened hearts turn us away from the only one that can save us. So Jesus then sighed in deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now I don't know about you, but when someone you ask a question to sighs, it's often a negative thing, right? Like, think about it. Mom, Dad, do you think I can get a, a distinction in this exam? 
yeah, it doesn't work, right? Or, babe, do you love me? It's like, uh, it just doesn't work at all. So here, Jesus has a negative reaction to the Pharisees, right? And even more, Mark says that Jesus' sigh was done deeply in his spirit. So he was groaning at the, uh, at the Pharisees. If Jesus had shown overwhelming compassion to the receptive crowd earlier, Jesus now shows an overwhelming sense of dismay to the Pharisees. His patience to put up with them has run out. If due to the hardness of their hearts, they aren't able to believe in Jesus after witnessing all his miracles through this time, or they, they're failing to acknowledge that all their scriptures that they were learning and, uh, learning and studying pointed to Jesus as the Messiah, then they sure as heck wouldn't believe in Jesus, even if a miracle was to be done in front of them then and there. And what does Jesus do to the Pharisees? In verse 13, he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Imagine having the creator of the universe turn his back on you and sail away. You know, before we move on, Stacy and I just want to point out a very clear message here. For those of you who are here physically or tuning in online and have yet to give your life to Christ. When we encounter Jesus, we will always have two options. You will always have to believe in him or you don't believe in him. There is never any, there's no middle ground. There's no fence sitting. And maybe for some of you here tonight, you know, you had that opportunity to believe in him in the past, but you chose not to. And by God's grace, you are here today listening to this message. Or maybe this is your first time in hearing about who Jesus is. Whatever it is, whatever the point, we just want to make this point. Like we read in the passage tonight, Jesus' patience is not infinite. Yes, he is very patient. He will put up with a hard heart for a long time. But there will come a time when that patience will run out. And when it does, a hard heart will prevent a person from ever looking to Jesus. And if that happens, it'll be too late. Thank you. All right. So we have seen the first two points. We've seen the heart of the crowd and we've seen the heart of the Pharisees. Now we will see the heart of the disciples of Christ. Let's read uh, verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. So here we are, back to the topic of bread again. I know a friend who really loves bread. In fact, at the 21 days of corporate fasting, she said, I can give up, give up rice, but not bread. And I'm sure many of us today here like bread as well. But back in the days, back in Jesus' days, bread was not only a nice thing to have. Uh, for breakfast or for snacks, but it was a staple food, and it still is for some people. Bread is a symbol of sustenance and nourishment. And that's why the disciples were discuss discussing that they didn't have enough bread. They were worried that they will be hungry and they have nothing to eat. Isn't it fascinating, though, that the disciples were present at the two feedings. They saw how Jesus fed the 5,000 people and the 4,000 with only a couple of bread. And yet, they are still worried they did not have enough bread. But before we are quick to judge the disciples of Jesus, Jesus, as the good, as the good teacher, took this opportunity to teach them an important spiritual, a spiritual warning. 
And this warning is applicable for us as well today. So let's see what happened next. In verse 15, Jesus says, And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. When I first read this verse, I was like, this is not right. Because we have the disciples who are worried about not having enough bread. And in, as a response to that, Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. It almost seems they are not talking about the same thing. But Jesus wanted to teach the disciples an important lesson about bread. Although it was not what the disciples had in mind. So for those who don't know, leaven is a type of yeast. And if you have met bread before, you know that yeast is very needed because the small amount of yeast can make or break your bread. It can make your bread fluffy as a pillow or hard as a rock. So during the lockdown period, as many of us do, my sister and I tried to make, make bread. And to our surprise, it was a success. Because when we proved the bread, it was the dough was rose so big. Maybe you didn't trust me, uh, my skill as a baker. So I consulted the Google, right? So I Googled Jamie Oliver's bread recipe. And he said in the recipe, he uses 30 grams of yeast for one kilogram, kilogram of flour. And if I convert that into percentage, you will only need 3% of yeast to make a bread. So my point in all of this is, a small amount of yeast can radically alter anything into which it is mixed. I'm going to say it again. A small amount of yeast can radically alter anything into which it is mixed. So what Jesus is saying here is, watch out, beware, be very cautious of the small influence of the Pharisee and the Herod. Because that small influence can make or break your faith. That small influence can affect your heart. Because remember, Pharisees are not just ordinary people in that day. They were religious leaders. They know the scriptures well. They know the routines. They do all the religious routines. But their biggest problem is their religion is all external. But their heart is far from God. And Herod, the guy who sort of attracted to the ministry of John the Baptist, but he ended up killing him anyway. So for both Pharisee and Herod, they look like good Christians from the outside. But that's all it is. For them, their faith is all on the external. But it doesn't touch their heart. Paul Tripp puts it this way. Be very concerned about the externalism that is not a religion of the heart. Be very concerned about worship that is more penance than repentance. Be very concerned that your world of faith isn't this public, religious, habitual living of your, faith, of your faith in front of other people in sort of a showy way that has nothing to do with the claim of God on your heart. Church, God's warning is this. You don't want a kind of faith that looks amazing on the outside but weak on the inside. And I hope this is the warning for all of us tonight, that we don't grow comfortable with our ministries that we don't grow comfortable with our doing for God rather than our heart for God. Because it is very possible for us to come to church every week, to do ministry, attend MC, and yet our heart is far from God. Church, what Jesus wants more than your ministries is your heart. 
Don't get me wrong. We love the doer of the word, right? We love the one who comes to church, who serves, who helps, who reads the Bible. But we need to be very careful if we are doing it for the right reason. I'm going to say it again. What God wants more than anything is your heart. Because, the godly, because true godliness comes from godliness of the heart. Our action is a mere reflection of our heart. I hope tonight we check our heart, whether we do the things that we do for God because we love Jesus, because we treasure him, because we trust him above all else, or we just do things for the sake of doing things. So that's a very serious warning coming from Jesus, right? But let's see how the disciple responded to this warning in verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. My Lord, how slow is the disciples? Because after this warning from Jesus, they are still talking about they not having enough bread. They still focus on their physical needs. When Jesus talks some, about something deeper than just the physical needs. On the surface level, it feels like the disciples are just like the Pharisee. They just did not get it. But I want to make a point that disciples were not the same as the Pharisees. The Pharisees denied Jesus, tested Jesus, and were trying to kill him. But the disciples, they did not deny Jesus or try to kill him. They were doubting, yes. They didn't get it, yes. But they were learning very slowly. And this is perhaps the reality for some of us tonight. It feels like we are not going anywhere with our faith. We keep doubting Jesus. We keep asking the same question again and again. Whether God, we ask God whether he can provide for us. And at times it can feel very frustrating. But the next part of the passage shows how Jesus dealt with the slow heart of the disciples. Let's read verse 17 to 21. So Jesus jumps in and says, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Have you not perceived or understood? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, and you do not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered, 12. And the seven for the 4,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they answered him, seven. And he said, do you not understand? Jesus asked his disciples all these rhetorical questions, to reveal to them their unbelief. Jesus wants them to see that not once, but twice Jesus provided for them. The disciples saw, and yet they still did not believe. Seeing does not mean believing. But isn't it kind of scary? That means we could be looking at Jesus right now, and yet we still do not believe. We could be coming, every, coming to church every Sunday, be the first one to help, and yet we still be missing the point. We do not believe that Jesus is Lord. Seeing does not mean believing. And I tell you what, if I was Jesus, I would be very frustrated with the disciples, right? I was like, come on, man. You see what I did to the disciples, and you heard the word that I taught, I mean, to the crowd. Um, where am I? Sorry. Um, but praise God, Jesus is not like me. 
Because when I read these verses again, all I can picture is a gentle teacher who is trying to help the disciples understand. Jesus did not just left the disciples on their own trying to go figure things out, but he helped them to understand. Um, Jesus did not turn his back as well to the disciple, but instead he rebuked them gently with these questions. And to reveal who he is to the disciples, Jesus was making the disciples to remember what he has done for them before. He reminded them that he not only fed the crowd, but there were baskets of leftovers, meaning that Jesus not only satisfied the hunger, but they gave them more, so, so much more. He made the impossible become possible. In remembering what Jesus has done, Jesus wanted the disciples to know that they can trust Jesus with the physical needs, but more than that, they can trust Jesus with their spiritual needs. They can trust Jesus with their heart and their deepest desire. And this is true for all of us as well today. If we know someone who is doubting, or we ourselves doubt God, remember Christ. Remember what he has done for you. Remember how Jesus showed up for you again and again. Remember how he makes your impossible become possible. You can trust him. You can give him your heart. You can give him your deepest desire. You can give him your deepest, darkest corner of your heart. Most of the time, we think that Jesus would be offended if we come with our doubts and fear. But if we are his people, if we are his disciples, our doubts and fears are welcome. He wants you to come to him, not away from him. So bring your doubts, bring your fear, bring your uncertainties to Jesus, and remember what he has done for you. Jesus wants you to come to him. And I'm going to close with this. So even though the Pharisees and the disciples did not get who Jesus is, Jesus responded very differently towards them. With the, with the Pharisees, Jesus turned his back and sailed away. But with the disciples, Jesus helped them to understand who he is. He is, he is patient and gentle towards them. Because you know the worst thing that you can do for someone, especially those whom you love, is to turn your back, walk away, and let them do whatever they want to do. Even if that means putting themselves in harm's way. Let me put it this way. I have my beloved nephew, right? He is the cutest and most adorable little kid I've ever met. Bias, obviously. So he's um, two and a half years old, and he loves going outside. Like he loves going to the park, he loves um, just having an afternoon walk. So every time I stay with my brother, I make every effort to take him to the park. And being the independent two and a half years old that he is, he refuses to um, hold my hand when we walk outside. And sometimes I let him do it, right? I walk close by him, I let him walk by himself. But every time we are about to cross the road, you bet I will yell out his name. I will run to him I will, and I will hold his hand. Even when he says no, I will pick him up and hold him and we cross the road together. Because I know it will be very dangerous for him to cross the road by himself. You know what the worst thing I could do to him when he says no to my hand? Is to turn away, turn my back, walk away and let him cross the road by himself. 
And this is the same with God. The worst thing that God can do to us is to turn His back, walk away, and let us do whatever we want to do. Just like what He did to the Pharisees. But church today, we have the assurance that God will not turn His back on us, not on His people, because on the cross, God turned His back on Jesus. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I will never be forsaken again. On that cross, Jesus bore our doubts and fear. He nailed them to the cross so that you and I can have hope and the confidence that Jesus is in our side. He is on our side always. On the cross, Jesus makes the impossible become possible. He reconciles us, undeserving sinners, with the Holy God by taking our place, dying on our behalf so that the wrath of God can be satisfied. And this is the good news. The perfect Son of God took the cross so that we who are slow at heart can believe. The Pharisees seek for the heavenly sign, but for us today, the sign has been given, the cross. Church, if you have doubts, if you have fears, if you're unsure if Jesus will come through for you, look to the cross where God's beloved son took our place so that we can have hope in him. Let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, truly, truly, who are we that you are mindful of us? That you send your one and only son to die on the cross so that, can, so that we can come to you confidently, Lord, so that we can have hope in you. Lord, I pray that we will never go for, grow familiar with your love, grace, and kindness. Keep us in awe of the works of your Son. May your word today, Lord, rebuke those who need to be rebuked. Comfort those who need comfort, Lord, and give strength to those who are struggling. And for those, Lord, who have fear and doubt, I pray that you will come to them, Lord, with patience and gentleness and remind them, Lord, of who you are and the works of your Son. And for those who have yet to put their trust in you, Holy Spirit, we pray that you do the works that only you can do, Lord. Change people's hearts. Open their eyes so they can taste the sweet, sweet grace of you. We love you, Lord. We praise you and we adore you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.